0: Welcome to Chip Chat, an interview series that connects you with technology experts around the issues that industry is focused on today. And now your host, Allison Klein.
1: Welcome to Chip Chat. My name is Allison Klein. Today, I've got a very special guest, Mike Davies, Director of Neuromorphic Computing Lab at Intel. Welcome to the program, Mike.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: So, Mike, I've been excited to do this episode because neuromorphic computing has been something that's been in the news lately. It's been discussed by Intel, but there's still a lot of mystery about it. And so I wanted to have you on to talk about the technology and put it in context with some of the other things we talk about. Why don't you just start by introducing what the field of neuromorphic computing is looking at and how that relates to the lab that you run at Intel?
0: Sure. So uh, neuromorphic computing began about 30 years ago, I guess, as a field, a well-defined field, anyway. That was Carver Mead at Caltech, and he observed that there's some similarities in the way that information is processed in biological neurons as how silicon transistors sometimes can process signals and voltages. And so he saw these similarities specifically in the retina. And so he began on a program to try to replicate the way that the retina in eyeballs work and try to replicate that in chips. And so that's evolved over the years, but the principle is still the same, is basically to try to take insight and understanding from neuroscience, kind of a modern understanding of neuroscience about how the brain works, and to really connect that in a very structural technology silicon way to chips that we can build and try to achieve some of the great features and efficiencies that brains achieve.
1: Now, obviously, those who are pursuing neuromorphic computing are getting inspiration from the way the human brain functions. In what ways do you see neuromorphic computing evolving to be a good match for that human brain? And in what ways may that be misleading in terms of fully understanding the direction of the science?
0: Well, the key challenge in trying to relate the way the brain works at a low level to chips we can build is that it's not a one-for-one match. We're dealing with an entirely different design regime, different tools, different manufacturing processes. So it's not about biomimicry in a sense. It's not just copying what we find in the brain. It's about understanding the principles that have emerged through a billion years of brain evolution and led to this architectural solution that a brain represents. For that reason, it, what we end up doing may not directly look like a brain, but it hopefully will achieve efficiency and performance advantages for a wide range of computation. You know, everything that a brain is good at potentially is within the scope of what neuromorphic computing can enable. So that may include AI, but it may also include capabilities we wouldn't normally think of as being AI, for example.
1: If you were to look at Intel's strategy with neuromorphic computing, how would you summarize it? And how do the research chips that we've recently talked about fit in with that strategy and with our broader AI strategy?
0: Well, I think the strategy that we're taking with neuromorphic is about building a community of researchers you know, building an ecosystem because we realized pretty early on when we started this research program that this is a really huge task. It's very daunting and challenging, much bigger than any one company can do. And there aren't the tools out there that enable the researchers interested in this area of research to explore and solve the hard problems. So we've built Loihi and the chips we're doing to provide something that is not commercially viable today, but to use that as a focal point for building and aligning this research community on solving the hard problems that hopefully, once they're solved, will then lead to commercial applications and useful computational value.
1: Can you take us under the covers with Loihi in terms of the scale of neurons that you're delivering in this chip and how we're delivering it from a standpoint of a platform?
0: Yeah. So, a single Loihi chip has about 128,000 neurons in it, which is a far cry from the 80 billion neurons in a human brain. But it's important to recognize that the Loihi architecture is literally just an arrayed mesh of neuromorphic cores. So there's 128 of these cores in a single low-heat chip, and that's pretty much an arbitrary number. That was really a compromise between cost of fabrication and getting to a scale that was actually useful for something. But we can make larger chips, smaller chips, and what's very important is that we have an off-chip interconnect so that we can mesh chips together. It doesn't require any further glue logic, and you can just array out a whole set of low-heat chips to get up to potentially thousands of chips. So we have systems that have anywhere from a single chip in them to, you know, in a USB kind of form factor, all the way up to the biggest chip system that we're building now, which will have about 768 chips in it. And in the future, maybe we'd go higher. You know, maybe we find the right sweet spot that gives the right amount of functionality for the cost.
1: Now, you know, it's a new vision for neuromorphic computing. Tell me why this is a new vision and how has the response been from the broader tech community
0: Well, Luigi, the key difference that distinguishes it from prior work is that it has learning included in it. And that's the easiest thing to point to, meaning this is not learning in the way that, say, backpropagation is used today in deep learning. It's a different type of learning capability, which is, in a way, much lower level, which is harder to use, but it's enabling potentially learning at extremely low power levels, potentially with much fewer data samples than what the workhorse of AI today backpropagation requires. So that's the most obvious difference with Loihi that has kind of gathered some excitement within the neuromorphic field, meaning people that are studying learning rules, behaviors at the kind of forefront of computational neuroscience, and they see Loihi, and they see, ah, this has the feature set. It supports the kind of learning architectural features that these models require. So for that reason, Loihi has generated some excitement in this field because it's kind of taken this next step beyond what's been previously available.
1: Now... I was doing some reading and prep for this interview, Mike, and I came across a term that was spiking a neural network. Can you tell me about what it means to spike a neural network?
0: Yeah, sure. Spikes get a lot of attention in this field and actually a bit of controversy too. Spikes is all about temporal sparsity. So a spike is an event in a sense. So the key feature that distinguishes the neural network model or computational model in Loihi and other chips like it than the standard neural networks you may have heard of, is this idea that there's time that's sort of integral in its operation. So a communication by a neuron in a chip like Loihi happens at a particular point in time. And we abstract that and we call that a spike. It's really a packetized message, basically. But the specific time that that message gets sent is actually encoding information. So this kind of temporal coding dimension is one of those principles coming from neuroscience that we're trying to understand and adapt and and use in these types of chips. And it provides efficiency because the normal state of operation in the brain or in a chip like Loihi is idle, is to basically not communicate. And you could interpret that as, say, communicating a zero value, So maybe there is an information content you'd associate with that. But it translates to energy savings because a zero value in this case means you don't send. You just sit there and you do nothing. And yet you can work that into kind of the algorithmic operation of a chip like this that evolves through time. And it actually helps. It provides computational value by doing nothing and by spending no energy.
1: Interesting. So as you look at AI, as you look at different types of applications within that field and even beyond AI, where are you seeing the application of neuromorphic computing in the near term and in long-term evolution?
0: So I guess it's easier to start with the long term because I think many researchers in the field feel that robotics ultimately is the killer app for neuromorphic technology. That's because brains evolved to control bodies in all aspects. So there's just example after example where neuromorphic advantages have a direct bearing on robotic systems. So that could be maybe the low level control processes like the cerebellum type of processes, which is you know, fine motor control, adapting to kind of unpredictable changes in the environment or maybe friction that might build up in a robotic arm. A neuromorphic controller can just dynamically, continuously adapt to those kind of changes and achieve good accuracy in its movement, maybe even with very cheap manufacturing tolerances and devices, um, but then also the high level. So maybe planning, You know, if you think about what a brain is doing when we're navigating an environment, we're always continuously evaluating different possibilities, we have a mental model of what is short versus long paths, and that can lead to some surprising applications for this technology, maybe in the realm of, say, graph analytics, searching high dimensional, you know, very, very complex graph structures and doing that really efficiently. So that's been a surprise that we found an example application in that very conventional graph search type of domain. But in the near term, I think that the applications will be around processing temporal data streams and adapting to those data streams at low power very quickly. So that might be processing speech or audio, for example. So, you know, maybe you have a model that's first pre-trained in a deep learning approach, to recognize speech. But in your particular device, in your own mobile phone, you may want it to now adapt to recognize your particular accents or specific words or phrases that you speak more often. And so that neuromorphic technology could enable that type of a capability at very low power levels. But video, of course, would be the next step beyond that. Things like factory automation, so observing products that are coming down a conveyor belt at high speed and being able to rapidly recognize what's out of spec or what's unusual, so anomaly detection, those types of applications are where we see a lot of promise.
1: I'm sure that folks who have been listening are intrigued by what you and your team are doing, Mike. How can folks get more information about what we're doing with neuromorphic computing and what we've delivered with Loihi, and where we're going in terms of future innovation?
0: Well, there's a number of public articles and papers. If you Google search, you can certainly find some of that. There's a number of blog articles on Intel's AI blog site that I've written and a few more coming out soon. If you're a researcher or someone who's excited to be on the forefront of a field like this looking at applications, you can email INRC underscore interest at intel.com, and that is your ticket into our community that we're building. We have a website we can give you access to, and you can submit project proposals and then get access to, you know, our Loihi systems. That's open to researchers around the world. We have about 70 groups participating at this point, and welcome people to get involved and help us solve these hard challenges.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on the program, Mike. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Thanks. My pleasure. Visit ChipChat online at intel.com slash chipchat. And for more information on data center technologies, visit intel.com slash big data, intel.com slash cloud, and intel.com slash data center optimization.